Jacob for sharing those thoughts for communion. And uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. My name is also John, and it's great to have you all with us. Uh, as Jacob mentioned, we actually are inviting the church to learn uh, or perhaps relearn uh, for some of us how to open the Bible rather than to turn it on. Uh, so it's a little beta test for us. We're trying to go no digital Bible while we're in church for a little while just to sort of uh, see what happens. Um, for some of you guys, you're like, yay! Uh, you know, those stinking millennials, and some of you guys are like, what's a Bible and paper? Uh, so, John chapter 1, um, we, uh, we've been uh, in this series this past week that we just started called The Imitation of Christ. And what we're doing is we're going through each week and we're looking at different aspects of Jesus, different aspects of Christ. And we're talking about what it means for us to imitate him in those ways. And I realized that last week I didn't start with a more fundamental question, which is, why are we interested in imitating Christ at all? So I want to pose that to you. Again, Asheville Church, we really want to participate and not just spectate. So give me some of your responses. Why do you personally think that Jesus is worthy of imitation? Why do you personally want to follow or imitate Jesus? Go for it. Stand up and uh, speak loudly for the, for the whole room. Please. He's perfect and blameless and he knows how to do it. He's perfect and blameless and knows how to do it. Yep. What is it? He knows, he knows how to love God with he, all of his heart. Okay, he knows how to love God perfectly with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes? What else? Why do you personally think that Jesus is worthy of your imitation? There's no wrong answers necessarily. So go ahead, speak up. Just why do you think Jesus is worthy of your imitation? Go for it. He's the exact representation of God. So if I want to be like God, I imitate Jesus, I'm more like God. Okay, he was the exact representation of God, quoting in Hebrews. Yeah, what else? I just, he, he didn't hold back. Okay. Uh, he gave everything of who he was, his, his whole being, and his life for me. Okay. So he didn't hold anything back. He gave everything to you. And so you feel that that motivates you, that makes it worthy for you to imitate him. Yes. Great. What else? Um, I think there's a lot of meaningless in life without, um, without Jesus. Jesus like shows us what the real purpose is um, in our lives. Um, so if I don't want to imitate that, then I'm really spinning my wheels. Okay, so Jesus gives us great purpose and meaning in our lives without him... Uh, as, you know, Ecclesiastes spoke of, Solomon says, you know, hevel, hevel, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But Jesus gives us purpose, gives us meaning, gives us reason for this life. What else? Why is he worthy of your imitation? Through him, I can, can be, know God. Okay, through him, I can know God. Okay, so Jesus is worthy of your imitating of him because you needed help, because you were in need, and he provided what you needed. What else? Yes, ma'am. Because I want to go to heaven, and he's the only way to get there. <laughs> All right, so you want to go to heaven. I want that gravy train. He's going to get me there. What else? Uh, like, like I just said, because of his sacrifice for us. Okay, what else? Uh, yes, ma'am. I think we'd like to think that we're Make up our minds, but the truth is that we all imitate 
Okay, so you're saying the imitation of something is inevitable. So you want to be um, uh, specific and intentional about what you're interpret, what you're um, imitating. And so it's really interesting because I've been on the campus at UNCA. I'm sort of new around here. We just moved here this year. I've been on campus at UNCA, and it's really interesting to see that at work. Everybody's trying to not imitate the mass culture, and everybody looks the same. It's really funny to me. I'm like, wow, you guys are really doing a great job at not imitating. Okay, um, we all imitate something. That's so true. What else? Okay, so again, kind of correlating here that Christ, imitating Christ gives us purpose and meaning, gives us impact, and it benefits other people. Yes? We all value freedom. And a lot of times people, we think we are, we're free because we can do anything we want, or we are going after what we want. But uh, Jesus lets us know that Okay, so your motive, the reason why you feel Jesus is worthy of your imitation, because he offers genuine and real freedom. Excellent. Yes, sir. Okay, so you imitate Jesus. He's worthy of your imitation because of his confidence, right? I think about the passage where it says that they saw Jesus teaching as one who had authority and not like other people that taught. And they were amazed by that. They stopped asking questions eventually. In the back, yes, David, thank you so much for running our sound, by the way. Woo, David, yeah! <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so Jesus' love and compassion, his lack of arrogance, his great humility. Today we're going to talk about Jesus' mouth, imitating Jesus' speech. John chapter 1. In verse 14, it says, The word, which is in reference to Jesus here, as he spoke just previously in the verses ahead, it says, The word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us. John is wanting to help us be sure that we know Jesus was a man. He came in the flesh. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father. And this is how he came. He came full of two things, grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came full of grace. What does that mean? Grace, I think, is a very Christian-y concept, right? It's something that we hear a lot about in church. And you hear phrases like, I'm saved by grace. Or God is gracious. Or 
Thank you for God's grace. And Jesus here is depicted as a person, a man who was in the flesh, that was the one and only Son of God, the Father, who is full of grace. I think about examples of this grace in the Gospels. One of them was mentioned already. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, verse 2 through 11. What happens in that scenario? Last week, I believe, was it you, Alex, that talked about this? I can't remember who did communion last week. That talked about, thank you, it was Aaron, who talked about this passage in John 8. That this woman would have been brought to Jesus, perhaps very likely caught in the act of sex itself. She could have very well been naked. Where was the man that was participating in this act of adultery? Well, he's nowhere on the scene, apparently. This woman's being discriminated against, as Aaron pointed out. She's being berated, and she's actually expecting to be killed because the law of Moses says that you must be stoned to death. And these people bring this woman to Jesus with no care, no intent to help this woman, no real motive to even perhaps carry out God's divine law. The scriptures actually teach us their motive is what? To try to trap Jesus. They're trying to go after this guy, and this woman is just a pawn. And what he does stuns everyone. And one by one, they walk away. It says the oldest first. That's interesting, right? Kind of indicates maybe the older we get, the more in touch with our sin we become. Probably because there's more of it to be in touch with. <laughs> and then he says, where are your accusers to the woman when no one's left? Everyone's gone left her in her shameful, obviously sinful position, but everyone walks away. I guess I can't condemn her because I'm no different, is what Jesus is drawing their attention to. He says, where are your accusers? Nowhere, sir, they've left. Well, neither do I condemn you. The one who could pick up a stone, the one who had never sinned, who actually could fulfill the law of Moses righteously with her. None of the others could. And he says, I don't condemn you either. But as Aaron pointed out last week, it wasn't unconditional. His grace did have conditions. What does he say? Now go and leave your life of sin. Go and stop sinning. I think about in Luke chapter 23, 32, through 20, uh, 32 and 34. Jesus is on a cross. He came full of grace. And people are mocking him. Two people are being executed next to him and they're mocking him. I mean, you talk about some gall, right? Wow, you are literally being executed and you're still like jeering people. Ha ha ha, Joker. Like, really? Okay. I'm about to die too. You would think that some ounce of humility would come across your mind at some point. One of the gospel writers says that perhaps it did with one of them, in fact. But what was Jesus' response while on the cross and being mocked by other people being killed and by the people who were killing him? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The amount of love and grace and forgiveness that it takes to want someone to be forgiven when they are actually wronging you. He came full of grace. 
Peter in Matthew 18. Jesus gets done talking about dealing with sin in the church, dealing with sin with each other. If your brother goes or if your brother sins against you, you're supposed to do what? Somebody a little bit louder. What are you supposed to do? Matthew 18. Go show him his fault, right? Go show him his sin. Go point it out to him. He says if he listens, you've won your brother over. If he doesn't, do this and then do that. And he's going through this process of loving someone in truth. And then Peter says, because he's baffled by this love, right? He's baffled by this way that Jesus is saying we should love one another. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Peter's grabbing at this holy number from the Old Testament. Seven times, right? That's a perfect number. It represents God in a perfect way. So seven's good, right? Eight? No, 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 no. That's too much. Seven times. And Jesus says, no, 77 times. Or 70 times seven. Meaning, there is no limit. We're not to forgive up to a point. And then we're justified in stopping. How do you think Peter felt? Challenged. <laughs> Lord, increase our faith. Last week, you know, we talked about imitating Jesus. We talked about the mindset of Jesus, the humility, and having reconciliation with one another. And I actually asked people to not come back to this church if you were not reconciled with your brother. Because that's what Jesus told you to do. That's what he teaches me to do. But to forgive someone 70 times, 7 times, John, come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, wouldn't I just get abused? Wouldn't I put myself in a position to just be willfully and wrongfully, continually hurt and harmed? 70 times 7. <laughs> Jesus came full of grace. To forgive people while he was hanging on a cross because of their ignorance. I don't know about you, but I would have been asking Michael and the rest of the angels, hey, hey, guys, um, you know, come on down now. Come on. And then in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus came full of grace. After struggling in the garden, knowing what was coming, his friends falling asleep on him, the body's weak. But the spirit is willing. He says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Judas approaches him and he says, friend, do what you came for. Even in the midst of betrayal from one of his closest, Jesus still calls him friend. How would you have felt if you were Judas when Jesus called you friend? Well, just think back to the last time you sinned. Today. Or yesterday or this week Jesus calls you friend it's not unconditional he wants us to follow him he wants us to imitate him but he came full of grace it also says that he came full of truth and so John juxtaposes grace and truth he identifies them and distinguishes them as two different things Jesus came in great truth as well as incredible grace. He offered forgiveness when it seemed impossible to do so. He offered no condemnation when everyone else wanted to condemn. 
But yet he also offered truth, even when it hurt people's feelings. You look at Jesus when he deals with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. You can find it in verse 17 through 22. I'm hoping that you're writing these down. And you can go home on your own and open up your own Bible. Because we want everybody to lay your own eyes on the scriptures for yourself here in this church. In Mark chapter 10, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. Which is interesting because, of course, Jesus was good. But he's deferring worship to God. So he's actually obeying the Ten Commandments of Moses. That you shall have no other gods before me. So as this rich young ruler comes and offers this man this form of worship, this rabbi, this teacher, this form of worship, he has a question for him. He wants something. He's in need. Give me eternal life. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Give a tenth. Don't defraud. He says, all of these I've done since I was a little boy, Jesus. Thank you very much. And I'm sure this man must have felt a sense of security, a sense of joy, like, wow, great. That's exactly what I was thinking it was going to take to inherit eternal life. Thank you, Rabbi, for rubber stamping what I already thought. And then the gospel writer Mark writes an interesting phrase. He says, Jesus looks at him and he loves him, full of grace. And then what does he do? He says, nah, man. He's able to look right into his heart. Jesus had the ability to see what was inside of a man, unlike you and I. But he says, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then you're good. No, he says, then come follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus touches on this spot in this man. He says, you want eternal life. And the greater picture here is he's asking for eternal life. And Jesus is turning it back on him. He's using a mirror so that this rich young guy can see himself more clearly. And he says, you actually don't want eternal life the most. You want your money more. He says, therefore, you won't get eternal life. Jesus is saying eternal life is so valuable, it has to be what we want more than anything else. And for this particular guy, he points out to the fact that he didn't. And it caused him to go away sad. Do you think the guy wanted eternal life? Of course he did. But he didn't want it most. And so he's sad that he can't have his cake and eat it too. Are you allowing Jesus to speak the truth to you? That you can't have your cake and eat it too? That no, you can't have God's love unconditionally and still be able to do what you want? God's love does come with conditions. He says, I must be most for you. You must love me with all that you have. That truth hurts sometimes. If we're going to imitate Jesus, if we're motivated by God's love for us in Jesus enough to motivate us to imitate him with everything we've got will you speak the truth to your brother or sister even when it hurts their feelings wow that's super unpopular you know what I've had people come into this church just in the last few months 
and have left because some truth was spoken that hurt their feelings. Just like this guy in Mark 10. Jesus didn't run after this guy when he got sad. He didn't say, oh, wait, wait, wait. I was just kidding, man. I was just kidding. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Amen. We can make this okay. All right, just, just give half of your possessions, sell them to the poor, then come follow me. Jesus didn't do that. He let the guy go away sad. I'm expecting Mark to pick it up somewhere and be like, oh, remember that rich guy? Yeah, yeah, him and Jesus, they're good now. You know, and he tells us how it all worked out. Nope. It ends with the guy walked away sad. You don't know if he ever inherited eternal life or not. You don't know if he sold his possessions. You don't know if the grip and the love of money was released off of his heart. It just ends right there. Full of truth. Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to actually have you all turn there. Matthew chapter 23, because I don't want to quote too much scripture without you turning. Matthew 23, the seven woes, it's called. Have you ever said woe to somebody recently? Whoa, yeah, yeah. W-O-E, not W-O-A-H, you know. Whoa, whoa. Okay, so this is a different kind of woe. This is a woe as in sorrow. And it's called the seven woes because Jesus, again, reaching for that godly number of seven is, I want to use a euphemism that I probably shouldn't. He is smacking the religious people of his day right in the face. I mean, Jesus is like, what do the five fingers say? Whoa, 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 whoa. And you got two more woes on top of that. And the whole concept of these woes is that Jesus is taking their outward religiosity and condemning it because their inward lives are not right. He's speaking the truth to them. And he says in verse 25, Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, meaning watch out, be warned, teachers of the law and Pharisees, the most religiously elite powerful and respected people of Jesus' day. He says, you are hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish. And then, of course, the outside will also be clean. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. You come to church, you give your money, you say, hey, bro, and give your side hug. But on the inside... You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You have hatred towards your brother. You don't like me. You've got sin in your life that no one else knows about. Hidden pornography, sexual sin. There's greed that you're not dealing with. He says you're a hypocrite. And then, you know, listen to this. This is crazy. Where is it at? Verse 15. Oh, boy. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Did you know that Jews were trying to convert people? They were. God had called them to be his holy people amongst the earth, to display his glory and splendor to the rest of the nations. And Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? You travel over land and sea. You actually go on mission trips to make a single convert. Just to convert one person, you will travel far and wide, which is great. But when you do that, when you succeed in making a single convert, guess what happens? You make them twice as much a son of hell as you. Why? Because you're passing on religiosity. You're passing on an externally clean cup while the internal is still wicked. I wonder how many of us are doing that. Perhaps unintentionally. But we're teaching people outward morality. You need to imitate Jesus and get the outside of your cup right. But Jesus speaks the truth and goes to the inside and says, what are your motives? Why do you desire that? Or not desire that. This is how we're supposed to be converting people. To imitate Jesus because he changes us from the inside out. He's willing to take our evil desires and change them to pure desires. Let's be careful that we're not traveling over land and sea to convert people and make disciples. But when it's distilled down... It's just outward religiosity. Come to church. Be a part of this group. Read your Bible. And we distill conversion down to a checklist. While the heart has never really been changed or cut. So what does it look like for us to imitate Christ who came full of grace and truth with each other? Ephesians chapter 4. Imitating Christ is always fine and dandy as a theory. And then you start trying to do it with other people. And now the lab has gotten really real. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, he says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, as he's talking about being equipped as a body. After that happens, then we're no longer going to be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Do you want to know if you're an infant spiritually? Look at how much you're swayed. Look at how much you get tossed around in your emotions and your convictions. That's the connection here. He says... Instead of being infants, instead of being blown around, instead of being up today and down tomorrow, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what is your work and my work as a part of the body of Christ is to speak the truth in love. It's to be full of grace and truth. If you're not speaking truth to people, 
Even if it hurts their feelings, you're not doing your work. And the body is suffering. And everybody else is not growing because of you or because of me. That's what he's saying here. He says, look, guys, we're inextricably linked. We're ligaments. We're sinews. We're tied together. 1 Corinthians 12, you can't say to I don't need you. You can't say to him, I don't need you. We're all a part of this body together. So if we're going to imitate Jesus, you got to be willing to be full of grace and truth. And just to be quite honest, after eight-ish, nine-ish months here, I think that we tend to do a lot better at one than the other. I think that we do a lot better at being full of grace. And we're willing to forgive. Or we're willing to be warm. We're willing to have an outward appearance of love. But it's not actually godly love. Because we won't speak the truth. Even when we know the truth. Even when the spirit prompts us to say something, we quench him. Because we don't like conflict. Because we don't want to deal with what that truth is going to do. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. And it will cause division. This church is getting divided right now. Because there are those who love truth and those that don't. And I know it hurts. But Jesus warned me to not say peace, peace. When there is no peace. So I'm not going to say peace unless we love the truth. Amen. Ephesians 4, he continues on. It says in verse 29, imitating the speech of Jesus. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Yikes. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all rage. Get rid of all anger. Get rid of all brawling and slander. Could you imagine? These dudes are actually throwing blows in Ephesus in church. He says, get rid of every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's be forgiving. You know what? Sometimes people are going to come and speak the truth to us, and they're not going to do it very well. They're going to speak the truth, and it's going to come out all sideways. Let's be forgiving. Let's try to be humble and hear the message and not get so caught up on the messenger and how it came. Well, I just didn't appreciate how that brother approached me. His tone wasn't right. His eye was looking over to the left when he said that, and I just thought I felt very disrespected, like he wasn't really caring about me. Come on, guys. Let's be forgiving. Let's love the truth. And if somebody is bold enough and loves you enough to speak the truth, however poorly it might be, let's appreciate them. Sure, let's speak the truth in return. Say, brother, I really appreciate that. This is what I'm hearing you say. This is the message that I'm getting. And I'm grateful for that. Can I offer you a piece of advice? When, when, when that lazy eye goes over here, it's a little distracting. Okay, It makes me feel like you're not paying it. Whatever it is, right? I'm using some silly examples. 
Let's learn how to speak the truth in love. Amen. While we're not letting any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. See, the tongue is a sword, James says. It's like a little spark that can set an entire forest ablaze. On one hand, we can praise God. and On the other hand, we can curse our brother. The tongue is a dangerous thing. Let's use our tongues to speak the truth in love. But also, let's watch the other side of our tongue. That we're not speaking slanderously about one another. That we're not saying, oh, I can't believe that sister. Oh, no, she didn't. Can you believe what she wore today to church? That's the conversation you need to have to her, not to someone else. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building others up. Let me tell you a story. I'm terrible at this. I was a young Christian in college, and as you might have picked up, I have a way with slang. And it was even worse back then. And I would have brother after brother after brother come and speak the truth to me in love about my unwholesome talk, about my sarcasm, about my cutting words, about my way of joking that I thought was just ha 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 being colloquial brothers. It was really actually hurting people's feelings because why? That's how I was taught how to talk in the world. And I brought it in with me. Two big suitcases of baggage right into God's church. I think I even have one on my back. And these brothers would not relent, and I'm so grateful for them. And I still need help. I remember Ephesians 4.29. This brother, see, back then we used to only have paper Bibles. He would come up to me after service, and he would have Ephesians 4.29 open. Oh, Bruno. And he would say, little Italian dude, like this big. And he would be like, brother, let's read this passage together. All right, first time I didn't know what was coming. I said, okay, cool, you know. Ephesians 4.29, let me know And I started thinking, where is this going? <laughs> and he said, bro, I just, I feel like your sarcasm is unwholesome. And it's not useful for building other people up. Are you thinking about what you're saying? And he would use real life examples. And I was like, the first time I was like, yeah, I'm spiritual. Amen, thanks, bro. I appreciate that. I love that. The second time I was a little bit, not so much. <laughs> I said, really? Again? Dang, okay. The third time, I was like, oh, come on, man. Really? The fourth time, by this time, I had the passage memorized. I said, bro, I don't need to turn there, all right? Let no one hold some talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building others up. I got it. He says, but do you really? And I really look back on that, and I appreciate this brother who didn't have to. It would have been so much easier for him to avoid the conflict or avoid the potential of conflict, to not say anything, just let me go about my merry, ignorant way. And he said, no, I'm going to love this guy. I'm going to speak the truth and love to him. I'm going to help him. And I really did and do appreciate that. And what did it do for me? It caused me to have a greater sober estimate of myself. That I really do let a lot of unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. And I really can be sarcastic. And it helped me connect dots on why do I do that? And where does it come from? And why am I, what am I trying to achieve in those things? And God starts to really dig deep in transforming me from the inside out. It could have been a lot easier for me to whitewash the outside and say, okay, I'm just gonna stop and shut up. I'm just not gonna say nothing to nobody. No, 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 that's just outward appearance of righteousness. God was wanting to transform me on the inside. I gotta really care about people enough to think 
about what I'm saying. And if I'm not willing to do that, I'm not willing to imitate Jesus. Let's not let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. Colossians 4. We've been talking about being full of grace and truth with each other as Christians, as brothers and sisters, as a family of God. God also says how we should be full of grace and truth with those outside the church. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, meaning those outside the fellowship of Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of what? Grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. That seasoned with salt phrase is an ancient euphemism for things that preserve, things that make whole, things that make tasty, make flavorful. It's the idea of Jesus saying when someone has lost their salt, how can they be made salty again? Salt was an ancient preservative. There's something that added taste to something that was flavorless. And he says, when we act with others outside the church, we still need to be full of grace and have speech that's seasoned with things that will help people be preserved eternally. Speak in such a way as to have a flavor that's distinct from the flavor of the world. That's how we're to talk to even outsiders. So as we're thinking about imitating Jesus, imitating Christ, as he came full of grace and truth, let's learn, let's practice with each other how to be full of grace and truth with one another. And also how to be full of grace and have conversations that are seasoned with salt, even with those outside of the church. And if somebody decides to be so bold as to practice, even today, after church, don't run, don't go straight to your car. Let's, let's practice with each other being full of grace and full of truth. And know that as we practice this, we're going to need to forgive a lot. We're going to need to check our pride a lot. We're going to need to hunger and thirst for righteousness a lot. I'm so grateful for this church. I love this church. We love being here. I want y'all to do this with me too. No one is exempt, right? I so appreciate Michael Lyons a couple months ago coming up to me and speaking the truth and love saying, bro, you mishandled that scripture. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. I wasn't intending it, but wow, what you said was very helpful. And he's a young guy. And I would imagine it might be a bit intimidating to come and talk to someone like me. So I've heard. I don't know. <laughs> but let's do this together as a family to imitate Jesus full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your son came in the flesh, that he was seen, and that he came full of grace and truth. Thank you for all the ways that Jesus is gracious with us, that we, like that adulterous woman caught in the middle of a shameful act, you don't condemn us. You just call us to leave our life of sin. Thank you for that grace. And Father, thank you that we can look to Jesus to also learn how to have conversations that are filled with truth and that we can love you and love truth more than what other people think about us. God, that's hard because we care. We care a lot about what other people think. 
Help us to have a security, a confidence, a validity, an identity, a worth that's in you and you alone. That would embolden us to speak the truth in love to one another and to forgive each other as we do that. Because God, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to try to do the right thing. We're going to do it in the wrong way. But God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can be gracious with one another. And that by doing the work that you have given us in your body, we can become mature and see your kingdom spread throughout this area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.